Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. The Volume. It's Hoops Tonight presented by FanDuel. The NBA season is kicking into gear and there's no better place to get in on the action than with FanDuel. The app is safe and secure. Getting your money out is super easy. You can jump into the action at any time during the game with live betting. And I love building those same game parlays. And FanDuel is now live in Ohio. So use promo code JasonT and download the FanDuel app today to start making every moment more. 21 plus in select states, FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. Dial one 888 789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. Dial 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. Dial 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. Dial 1-877-770-STOP in LA. Call 1-800-327-5050 or visit www.com M-A-H-E-L-P-L-I-N-E dot org slash problem gambling. Visit www.mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Dial 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369 in New York. Dial 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Monday, everybody. I hope all of you guys had a great weekend. We are live on AMP. Don't forget, if you're watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast feeds, that AMP is the very first place that you guys can get these shows. We have a jam-packed show for you today. We're going to hit three games from this past weekend. The New York Knicks went on the road 
to a red-hot Lakers team and got a big win last night. The Brooklyn Nets went into Denver and got a big road win. I thought that was interesting from a tactical perspective because they went small in the second half and did a lot of damage to the Nuggets' best five-man groupings, which I want to dive into some of the basketball concepts surrounding that a little bit and just the danger that that presents Denver and some of the ways that they're going to have to adjust to that. And then last but not least, on Saturday night, the Sacramento Kings won in Phoenix. That was their eighth win in nine tries, uh, which is the best record in the league since the All-Star break. Haven't talked to a lot of Kings lately, so I want to dive into them a little bit deeper and talk about what I think their playoff ceiling is. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of these videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore Jason LT, so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And if for whatever reason you guys miss one of these videos and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish, don't forget you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. So let's talk some basketball. The Knicks got a huge win. Um, they came in and threw an outstanding punch. I thought the Lakers were going to win that game last night just because of the, uh, without Jalen Brunson, them not having the same level of pull-up shooting uh, that you need to beat Darvin Ham's defensive coverages. Uh, but you know, a couple of things. Julius Randle and R.J. Barrett came in and just completely kicked the Lakers' ass on offense. They combined for 63 points. And I thought the story of the game was the perimeter defense of the Knicks versus the perimeter defense of the Lakers. I, I've talked a lot on this show about how I view the perimeter defense dynamic like the line play dynamic in football. Like A lot of times in football, we'll talk about a quarterback and how he's getting rid of the ball too quickly and he's not throwing the ball downfield and the offense is, is, is you know slowed down. But we won't acknowledge the fact that they can't run the ball because the defensive line is killing them and the quarterback's running for his life because the defensive line is killing them. And how that usually ends up being the primary driving force of how the game is going to play out. And we just as fans focus on the skill players because that's just the easy way to direct our attention and we forget some of those details that are taking place. And basketball, the same thing happens all the time. You know, we'll be like, oh man, he missed that shot. This guy missed that shot. Or, oh man, this star is settling for this jumper, settling for that jumper. And we don't acknowledge the fact that like, so many things about shot quality in the NBA come down to dribble penetration. Are your guards getting downhill? Because if they're getting downhill, you're drawing in help defenders. If you're drawing in help defenders, the defense is in rotation. If the defense is in rotation, then your offensive players are attacking with an advantage. And if they're attacking with an advantage, they're going to get higher quality shots. It's really that simple. And if you contain the basketball, suddenly those, those downhill opportunities aren't there. You're not engaging help defenders, so no one's open. And since no one's open, the guy with the basketball ends up taking and settling for extremely difficult pull-up jump shots. That's that's what that dynamic looks like. And way too often we ignore that dynamic. And, you know, the Knicks have some really good perimeter defensive players. The Jalen Brunson out, Emmanuel quickly sliding into that starting point guard role. He's an outstanding perimeter defender. You know, R.J. Barrett who's been an inconsistent offensive player in his career, is a good defensive player. Miles McBride, this, he's a little bit undersized, but he's super quick, Got has quick hands, is aggressive on the basketball, has got a good like stout low center of gravity and is strong, so he's a good point of attack defender. And then one of the, you know, again, one of the more bizarre trades of this trade deadline, the, uh, the Knicks going after Josh Hart, which was kind of like an all-in type of move that none of us saw coming. Josh Hart is one of the better perimeter defenders in the entire game of basketball because he can do what those guards do and he can switch on to bigger wings and contain them on the perimeter. Not that he needed to do that last night against the Lakers much, although he had some battles with Rui Hachimura. But those that specific core for the Knicks 
put the Lakers guards in hell all night long. And the Laker guards are somewhat limited, even with D'Angelo Russell. D'Angelo, you know, with LeBron James being out and with Anthony Davis, as great as he is, and he had a rough game last night. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But like as great as he is, he's not a guy that's a, you know, that can break you down with a live dribble from the perimeter. I mean, he was struggling beating Isaiah Hartenstein off the dribble last night, right? Um, so all of a sudden you're looking at the guard core as the primary offensive decision makers for the Lakers. And, you know, D'Angelo Russell is is a is a very good guard in this league, but he's not a top tier guard. And then all the other guys like Dennis Schroeder and Austin Rees and Malik Beasley, like those are role player guards in this league. And so if you defend in an extremely high level on the perimeter, you can give the Laker offense a lot of problems. And they did. Any lineup, they they uh, played three three of those four guys for a good chunk of that game. Any lineup that had R.J. Barrett. Josh Hart, Miles McBride, and Isaiah Hartenstein, regardless of who the fifth man was, was plus 15 in 12 minutes because of R.J. Barrett, Josh Hart, and Miles McBride, and the job they were doing on the perimeter, and Isaiah Hartenstein containing Anthony freaking Davis. I thought that was the difference in the game. There were a lot of wild swings, right? Like Julius Randle was red hot in the first half, and D'Angelo Russell was red hot in the first half, and there were these random swings there. R.J. Barrett kind of took over in the second half. But the primary driving force of the dynamic of that game and the way that the Knicks stayed in in control, for the most part, was that perimeter defense. And the fact that the Laker guards could not keep R.J. Barrett out of the lane, could not keep Emmanuel quickly out of the lane. While on the other end of the floor... They were forcing D'Angelo Russell into pull-up jump shots. They were forcing Dennis Schroeder into pull-up jump shots. The only guy that was really getting some dribble penetration was Austin Reeves. But even him, he struggled a little bit. He had three uncharacteristic turnovers uh, trying to throw cross-court passes over the Knicks' length. That perimeter defense dynamic is what swung that game. Kind of looking at the Knicks a little bit in the big picture, I think their defense is for real. When you combine what Mitchell Robinson kind of provides as an option in the front line, Isaiah Hartenstein is kind of a different type of option. And when you look at what they have on the perimeter defensively, their defense is for real. Everything for them comes down to shot creation, as I've talked about many times on this show. You know, obviously when they're healthy, it's Julius Randle and Jalen Brunson, but Emmanuel Quickly and R.J. Barrett in these recent weeks have done a pretty good job stepping into that uh, uh, that role and providing that little bit of offensive punch to give them a fighting chance in these games, um, we've ta- uh, I, I I consider the Knicks to be their their future to be entirely tied to their half court shot creation. I think they're going to be able to fight in these rock fights with some of these other teams uh, in the Eastern Conference. I know they're going to be able to get enough stops. It's can when they when they face a team like the Celtics, when they face a team like the Bucks, when they really lock down defensively. Whether it's the Bucks funneling everybody to Brook Lopez on uh, in the paint, or it's the Celtics and them having all the great perimeter defenders that they have, regardless of, of which one of those teams it is, they going, they're going to need to be able to get baskets consistently in the slowdown environment against those teams, and that comes entirely down to their shot creation. If they play the way they've been playing in the last month, they've got a chance. If they don't, they're going to get beat. That's really what it comes down to. On the Laker front, I, obviously it's a disappointing loss, Uh because you've, you know, Laker fans and, and and myself as someone who's been rooting for the Lakers, obviously you want to win that game. You're at home. It's the Knicks without Jalen Brunson. You've got an opportunity in the standing, so it's frustrating. But it was a weird night. Like, yes, the Knicks deserve a ton of credit, but there were a lot of Lakers that just had uncharacteristically bad nights. 
like Anthony Davis, 17 points on 18 shots, wasn't nearly as impactful defensively around the rim as you would expect. And on offense, he really struggled with Isaiah Hartenstein. And I don't really think that's going to happen much in the future. Like that's a kind of a bizarre circumstance there. Uh, Troy Brown Jr., he came in shooting 45% from three on four attempts per game in his last 17 games. He was 0 for 7 last night, and a lot of them were wide open looks. That's pretty unusual. Malik Beasley is shooting 32.6% from three since coming to the Lakers on 92 attempts. That There's got to be some positive regression there coming, and there's a separate conversation to have about whether Darvin Ham needs to cut his minutes a little bit because when he's not making shots, he's just not nearly the same defensive player as the other Laker guards. Jared Vanderbilt, that was the first time I've seen him really struggle with a defensive matchup since he came to the Lakers. Really struggled with Julius Randle in the first half. I do want to say, though, that I thought that the whistle played a little bit of a factor. Uh, Julius Randle picked up, a, I think he shot eight free throws in the first quarter. He picked up a couple of specific ticky-tack fouls in the first quarter that I thought really kind of disrupted the rhythm of the game and got Julius Randle into rhythm. There was one where he kind of dropped his shoulder and just went to the left on Jared Vanderbilt, and Jared Vanderbilt took the contact in the middle of the chest, and he got a foul. Didn't like that call. There was like a pump fake jumper in the lane in the first quarter that I didn't think was a foul. I think that one was on Rui Hachimura, though. Um, but that I, I do think that it was telling that in that specific matchup, again, Jared Vanderbilt's giving up some weight there, some size and strength to Julius Randle. He did struggle a little bit there. Um, but what I will say, though, is LeBron solves a lot of those problems. Like LeBron giving them another big body to throw at Julius Randle. And we'll talk about what he does offensively in a little bit. But Jared Vanderbilt did struggle with that Julius Randle matchup. Austin Reeves, who's been surgical in the half court as of late, had three uncharacteristic turnovers. So a lot of guys had really bad nights. Honestly, the only guys for the Lakers that I thought played well last night were Rui Hachimura and D'Angelo Russell. And so when you have in a you know, nine, ten-man rotation or whatever it is, when you've got seven or eight guys playing poorly. It's just it's just going to be really hard to win games. And honestly, it, I did a pr- there were a lot of Laker fans that were criticizing Darvin Ham. There were a lot of Laker fans that were criticizing their defensive effort. I didn't really think it was any of those things. Of course, the effort wasn't ideal, but effort is directly tied to the way the game is going too. Like when you can't get dribble penetration, it slows down your own rhythm. And when you're not playing as well offensively, you're not as confident and energetic on the defensive end of the floor. All those things are attached. I didn't think last night had much to do with Darvin Ham at all. There was a couple nitpicky things here or there rotation-wise. or you know, I didn't like when they went zone when Julius Randle was off the floor. But those are just nitpicky things. I think Darvin Ham's done a really good job. And that's not why they lost this game. The Knicks locked down all of the Laker guards. A lot of Lakers played poorly. And the Lakers' best players just didn't play well. If Anthony Davis goes out there and gives you 30 and 17, you win that game. That's just a fact. And so a lot of things just didn't go well. I don't want to overthink it. I, I will say, though, like looking at the Lakers' glass, I, I, want, to, I want to take a, a little bit of a zoom-out look at the Lakers from a glass-half-full perspective and a glass-half-empty perspective. So glass-half-full, obviously, AD plays a bad game. He plays better. You win. He even said so after the game. He's like, we lost. That one's on me. I didn't play well. Um specifically some of the role player struggles were fluky, right? Like Troy Brown Jr. going 0 for 7. That's not going to happen often. Malik Beasley is going to be due for some positive regression. And then lastly, LeBron being out. We just talked about how that might have helped as just another body to throw at Julius Randle. But on the offensive end of the floor, when you have, like, why were the Knicks able to play three players 6'5 and smaller on, uh, uh, on the perimeter defensively? Why? 
Well, the reason why is because the Lakers didn't have a real rim-pressuring forward to attack those smaller guards. Like, they went to Rui Hachimura in the post a few times, and, you know, he had a couple tough step-backs and fadeaways, but that's not a thing that you're, you're going to be able to run an entire offense around. And, obviously, Jared Vanderbilt is not an offensive weapon, and Anthony Davis was matched up with a center all game. So, like, the real... Like, if your guards can't get dribble penetration and Anthony Davis can't create from a, with a live dribble from the perimeter... All of a sudden, that rim pressuring forward becomes an absolutely vital position. And what ends up happening there is the way I talked about how you need to get the Knicks in rotation, right? So you can get them flying around and get higher quality shots. The only way you're doing that is throwing the ball to LeBron James and having him initiate stuff from the perimeter where even if they do contain him, he can pass over the top or he can back dudes down in the post to draw that help defender to then get the defense in rotation. Like LeBron fixes almost all of the problems that affected the Lakers last night. That's the glass half full way of looking at it. The glass half empty way is the Laker perimeter defense is not going to be fantastic. Like they'll have lineups that'll be good. Like uh, Dennis Schroeder and Austin Reeves, that's a good defensive backcourt that can hold their own. But offensively, that's not enough. Um, I think they're going to probably end up going down in big games with D'Angelo Russell at the point and with uh, um, Austin Reeves at the two. Austin Reeves, solid perimeter defender. D'Angelo Russell, not so much, right? So, like, perimeter defense is going to be an issue uh, for the Lakers. But that said, they have an awesome backline defensively. Between Jared Vanderbilt and LeBron James and Anthony Davis, when they're healthy, they're going to be okay there. They just can't afford... Like, Anthony Davis had a bad defensive game last night, too. If Anthony Davis has a bad defensive game alongside poor perimeter defense, it's just going to go poorly. But I do I do believe the Laker defense is going to be able to get a lot of stops when Anthony Davis is locked in, even with some limited perimeter defense, as we've literally seen in their defensive rating since the trade deadline. They've been able to get a lot of stops. But it's something to keep an eye on. And then lastly, the Lakers shot creation without LeBron. This is just the reality. I have said many times over the course of the last couple of weeks that the Lakers will struggle to consistently beat good teams until they have LeBron James back. And the main reason why is, like, it, it, they didn't have much of a chance at all without D'Angelo Russell. Now with D'Angelo Russell, they have a pretty decent chance in a lot of these battles. But they're not going to consistently win night in, night out against good teams until they get LeBron. And it's really this simple. Anthony Davis cannot create offense with a live dribble from the perimeter. He needs to be set up. He needs to be tossed the ball on the block and provided the spacing to operate. And he needs to be a play finisher and pick and roll or working on the offensive glass. That's the only way he can really impact a game offensively. He is not a consistent spot-up threat from the three-point line, and he's not going to stare you in the face and break you down off the dribble. That's the biggest difference between, between guys like him and Giannis for instance, right? Like that, that, that's going to be your fundamental difference there. I mean, even Joel Embiid throwing him the ball at the high post, he just has a whole other level that he can go to as an offensive initiator than a guy like Anthony Davis can. So that brings you to the guard core. And again, Danzel Russell, Austin Reeves, Dennis Schroeder, Malik Beasley, they're fine. That's a perfectly fine guard core when you've got LeBron James and Anthony Davis. But when LeBron is out, that, that group has a certain ceiling to them. They'll win, I think they'll go about 50-50 against good teams, and then they'll have a really good chance to win all the games against the bad teams. But until LeBron comes back, there's a certain ceiling to the way you can expect the Lakers to perform on the offensive end of the floor, especially when they run into teams with really good perimeter defenders. I don't think it's a coincidence that they lost 
to um uh to Minnesota the other night with Jaden McDaniels and Anthony Edwards. And I don't think it's a coincidence they lost last night to that Knicks defensive group that is so good. So they need LeBron back and they're going to need to kind of figure out how to address their perimeter defense concerns. I think the easy solution there is make sure you always have one of Austin Reeves or Dennis Schroeder out there in the big moments of the games, at the end of games, which the easy solution there is you just go to Austin Reeves next to D'Angelo Russell. I think that's the direction they'll end up going. All right, let's move on to Nets Nuggets. So the Nets won this game uh, 122 to 120. The Nuggets were in pretty solid control. I think they were up 77 to 71 at one point in the third quarter. They were really cooking the Nets with Jokic on the floor, especially in the first half. I think he was like a plus 20 in the first half of this game. Uh, but they uh, Jokic picks up his, uh, a foul on Claxton, gets him into foul trouble, and Jock Vaughn audibles and goes small, right? And I think the lineup, if I remember correctly, was... Cam Johnson, Dorian Finney-Smith, Spencer Dinwiddie, and I believe it was um, Cam Johnson and Royce O'Neal. I think that was the five-man group that they went with. And they immediately go on a 27-10 run to end the third quarter. A couple of consistent problems that you would see. Um, Centers in particular have have a different set of defensive instincts than guards do, right? Like we've talked about this a lot from the Jokic perspective on offense with inverted pick and roll. Like a lot of the reason why he has so much success running inverted pick and roll is like he's handling the ball and now you're asking a big man to navigate a ball screen as the on-ball defender. It's just a weird thing for him to do, right? Like point guards have a certain tendency defensively. Wings have a certain tendency defensively. And bigs have a certain tendency defensively. The problem is, is when you go five out offensively, Suddenly, there's no big man on the floor traditionally on the offensive end. So there's no guy screening and rolling to the rim, right? Nobody's rolling to the rim. Ball screens are popping to the three-point line. They're spacing you out. It's all drive and kick. The paint is unoccupied. And so one of the problems that big guys have in five-out situations defensively is they default back to their natural big guy defensive principles when that's not going to work because there's no big on the floor offensively. So a couple of consistent problems were hurting the uh, the Nuggets in this game. First of all, uh, Spencer Dinwiddie kept getting Jokic on switches. And Jokic actually was doing okay against Spencer Dinwiddie. Now, it's Spencer Dinwiddie. If you get to a late round of a playoff series, it's not going to be Spencer Dinwiddie. It's going to be someone like a, you know, a Steph Curry. It's going to be someone like a Deer and Fox, right? Like it's going to be a much better guard that's going to be on Jokic in those situations. But so let's let's look at it from this perspective. Denver was overhelping, right? Like they were sending doubles to help Jokic every time he got switched on to Spencer Dinwiddie, which was getting Brooklyn some open shots. And like, yeah, part of you as a Nuggets fan, like a lot of Nuggets fans were like, why were they doubling? Like uh, I will live with Spencer Dinwiddie isoing Nikola Jokic all game long. Yeah, I agree with you. And it was a bad decision in this particular game. But that specific concept will happen in the late rounds of the postseason when it's not Spencer Dinwiddie, it's a much better guard that is attacking Jokic in those switches. And then the second thing that was happening a lot is they would put Jokic in ball screens and Jokic was guarding them the way a big man normally would in a ball screen, right? Like he would kind of do a catch hedge, which is, you know, he basically is kind of like semi sort of in a high drop where he's containing the ball handler, but he's still kind of backpedaling and dropping back. And the Denver guards were chasing over the top and they were leaving shooters open on those pick and pops. Because again, that big man's not rolling to the rim. It's a guard that's relocating 
relocating to the three-point line, and all five players in that Nets lineup could shoot. So they were relentlessly attacking Jokic. Some of it was decision-making, right? Like, I, if I was Denver, I would have just switched all those screens and been like, try to ISO Jokic all game long. Be my guest, right? But that's not what happened. And they were really struggling because their defense was playing back to those four out one in principles, despite them being in a five out situation. So that was the offensive side of the 27 to 10 run on the defensive end of the floor. Dorian Finney Smith did a really nice job fronting Jokic in the post. And then the, uh, the nets were swarming around Jokic every time he catched the ball with doubles and then rotating out of it extremely well. That is a very good defensive group. Royce O'Neal, excellent defensive player. Mikhail Bridges, excellent defensive player. You know, uh, Cam Johnson is okay. Spencer Dinwiddie's actually been pretty good. You know, like they've got good defense. Dorian Finney-Smith, excellent defensive player. All really good defensive players, all really good athletes. So they can really fly around on the perimeter in those rotations. And they, uh, some of it was shot selection. Jamal Murray responded to the fronting of Jokic and the bracketing of Jokic by just jacking up a bunch of bad shots. That obviously is less than ideal. Um, but they really struggled to score. And that was kind of the genesis of the 27 to 10 run. And I want to be clear, it wasn't just Jokic. They were like Mikhail Bridges was going right at Jamal Murray a lot on the offensive end of the floor. Again, Denver's got entry points. It's going to be a lot of Jamal Murray. It's going to be a lot of Jokic having to guard on the ball when they get into the postseason. Then we get to the end of the game because Jokic comes back into the game in the middle of the fourth quarter and sends the Nuggets on a run. And they get it back to, I think it was 116 to 115. So it was a winnable game. Um, But when they got it to 116-115, Nikola Jokic made two back-to-back defensive mistakes that cost them the game. Uh, The first one was, uh, both of them were Spencer Dinwiddie pick and rolls with Nikola Jokic's man, uh, which I believe is Jordan Finney-Smith. On the first one, uh, Jokic comes up and sets the ball, or uh, Finney-Smith comes up and sets the ball screen, and Dinwiddie just comes off the ball screen and turns the corner on Jokic, actually beats him off the dribble, which is something that's going to happen. And he makes a kickout pass to the left wing. And what happens? After he makes the kickout pass to the left wing, Spencer Dinwiddie kind of relocates to the short corner on the left side. And I can't remember who it was that had the ball, but they were being guarded by Christian Braun. And they drive towards the middle. And in the process, when they're driving towards the middle, Christian Braun kind of has it contained, right? But Jokic is a big man. And you know what big men are used to doing? They're used to guarding big men. And so they're used to lingering around the basket. And they're used to helping on drives. And so Jokic left Spencer Dinwiddie, just left him, to go help Christian Braun on a drive that he didn't really need help with. Because that's his natural defensive instinct. Christian Braun made the nice little drop-off pass to Spencer Dinwiddie in the short corner. Wide open little 16-foot jump shot and he knocked it down. That was defensive mistake number one. Um, the Nuggets actually go down and score. I think I think Jokic uh, gets like an offensive rebound put back on like a missed hook shot or something. They come back down, they run the exact same action. And uh, on this play, Jokic takes a little bit more of an aggressive angle and has Spencer Dinwiddie contained, but it's the same coverage. And Contavious Caldwell-Pope is is chasing over the top of the screen and is staying with Spencer Dinwiddie. So they're running basically a, like a high drop or a catch hedge on Dinwiddie and leaving Dorian Finney-Smith wide open on the right wing. Dinwiddie just does a spin back uh, pivot, throws the pass at Dorian Finney-Smith. He knocks down the three. The Nets are up four with less than a minute left, and the game is over. And so again, like even though they had some success there in the middle of the fourth quarter, Jokic was on the floor for that entire 27-10 to 10 run, and he made the two biggest defensive mistakes down the stretch of that game simply because 
they went to a five-out offense for Brooklyn, and Denver was kind of falling back on their natural four-out, one-in defensive instincts. This is why I talk about this so much. You can put forth the facsimile of a decent defense in the NBA regular season. The Nuggets are 16th in defensive rating this season. That's not awful. Like, it's bottom half, but it's not awful, right? And they're only a few points away from being 12th or 11th or whatever, right? So it's not like they're a bad defense in the regular season. But the way that they've been a decent defense in the regular season is they've found ways to keep Jokic around the rim and to cover for him in space, and it hasn't been as much of an issue. But when you get to the postseason, it becomes a little bit more of a chess match, and there are specific ways to attack the Nuggets. It's going to take certain types of teams. It's going to take a team that has the necessary perimeter talent to punish them, right? Like, I don't think the Memphis Grizzlies are going to be able to punish Nikola Jokic in the half court offensively. Like, if they catch the right matchups, it might not even matter. But if they get against a team, and there are a handful of teams, whether it's the Sacramento Kings or if it's the Los Angeles Lakers or the Los Angeles Clippers or the Phoenix Suns, there are a handful of teams that will be able to put out some lineup groupings that are going to have enough perimeter talent to put this specific dynamic into play where they have to play five-out basketball. And if they do... Denver can't rely on their base scheme that they used in the regular season. Their base scheme that they used in the regular season just got them absolutely barbecued by the Brooklyn Nets. They need they need to be able to function five out. Their best bet is to be like, fine, attack Jokic all game long, attack Murray all game long, take bad isolation shots, and we'll probably still be able to win. But it's going they need to have more of that type of scheme prepared for that playoff situation. As a matter of fact, I'd like to see them here down the stretch of the regular season do a lot more switching. Put Jokic on an island more. At least practice it. Because you're going to need to be able to do that in specific matchups when they get later into the postseason. You know, I had some Nuggets fans in my mentions earlier this morning, several of them, that were like, um, like, oh, Jokic was a plus 14 in this game. And like, look, man, Jokic is a plus plus minus machine. He's a positive and damn near every single one of his shifts this year. He's been the best player by plus minus in the league this year by a mile. Uh, but here's the reality of the situation. He was on the floor for that entire 27 to 10 run. And he was directly responsible for the two biggest defensive mistakes of the game. And he was a minus six in the second half. So it's not like he could have run over to the scorer's table and been like, hey, I was a plus 14 tonight, and they were going to switch the outcome in the standings. That's not how it works. I'm not concerned about the Nuggets as a whole and what they're capable of on both ends of the floor in a 82-game regular season. They've been the best team in the Western Conference by far. That goes without saying. What I am specifically saying is that they have some weaknesses. Every team in the West has weaknesses. That's why, and I said this on, I went on with uh, uh, Mark Ryan with uh, CBS Sports uh, on uh, Saturday evening. And one of the things I said to him was like, because his first question to me was like, why aren't people taking the Nuggets seriously? If the season ended today, I would pick the Nuggets to win the Western Conference. Yes, I would. Because LeBron's not healthy. Kevin Durant's not healthy. Andrew Wiggins is not even with the Warriors. And the Sacramento Kings are just a worse version of the Denver Nuggets. And the Clippers have this Russell Westbrook thing, and they're a little bit inconsistent. There isn't anybody out there that looks better than the Nuggets. So they're the safest bet, and if the season ended today, I would pick the Nuggets. But obviously, the season doesn't end today. Kevin Durant's coming back. 
LeBron James is coming back. Right? Like, the Clippers might decide to just bench Russell Westbrook entirely when they get into these specific situations. Or maybe they figure out a way to use him in a way that's beneficial. I would argue they already have to a certain extent. Maybe the Sacramento Kings start playing Kessler Edwards more and getting more stops. and, and, And maybe their offense suddenly becomes a bigger weapon. Things could change. And if they catch the right matchup, there is an opportunity there for teams to attack Denver in a five-out setting by going after Jamal Murray, by going after Michael Porter Jr., and by going after Nikola Jokic. That's just a fact. And so we're going to talk about them and talk about what their upside is and what their downside is. Their upside is is they win the West, and then they get into the uh, the finals, and they you know catch the they catch the Bucks. And they're able to keep Nikola Jokic around the rim and everything works out fine defensively and they win the title. That is an option. That is a real outcome. But it's also possible that they end up in a bad first round series against the Golden State Warriors and they pick them apart in five out. That's also on the table. And like, it is amazing to me how how many Nuggets fans have ignored that. And I get it. You're a fan and you love Jokic. Uh, I, I know the feeling. Trust me. I get my own judgment clouded all the time with the Lakers and with LeBron, right? But what I'm saying is is that, like, let's acknowledge it for what it is. They're the best team in the West. I'd pick them to win the conference today. They are extremely vulnerable. They are extremely vulnerable if they catch a certain type of matchup. All right, before we get out of here today, let's talk Kings Suns. Um, so the Kings have won eight out of nine since the All-Star break. That's the best record in the league over that span. Some quality wins in there, too. They beat the Clippers twice. They beat the Pelicans. They beat the Knicks. Um, they beat the Suns on Saturday. That's the game we're going to talk about tonight. They won 128-119. to Seven Kings were in double figures in this game. Key adjustment down the stretch is Mike Brown went to Kessler Edwards. Um, didn't play very much of Keegan Murray or um, uh, uh, Kevin Herter in this game. And Kessler Edwards did an outstanding job defending Devin Booker. And he made, I think he made th- three, two or three threes in the game as well. So, like, he was functional enough offensively to not hurt them and was a much, much better defensive player than Herter or Keegan Murray, right? And, you know, it's funny because one of the things that, one of the ways you can always tell a dude's playing really good defense on a star player is the type of shots that he's taking. Uh, like, there was a late isolation possession um, in the late fourth quarter where Kessler Edwards is matched up with Devin Booker. And Devin Booker ends up taking like a ridiculously difficult step back three going to his right. And like, that's always the thing you can keep an eye on when you can tell when a guy's got a really good matchup versus a guy who's doing a really good job defensively. I'll give you an example. Uh, Later, I can't remember if it was earlier or later in the game, but in the same crunch time period, there was a play where De'Aaron Fox got switched on to Torrey Craig. And Torrey Craig is has no hope in hell at guarding De'Aaron Fox. And De'Aaron hit him with a left-to-right crossover and got like 10 feet of separation and rose up and knocked down the shot. It was a straight-up-and-down, wide-open 17-footer because he was able to get a ton of separation. With Kessler Edwards and Devin Booker, Devin Booker couldn't get separation from him. And so he had to take an extremely difficult, nearly impossible, stepping, fading jumper to his right from three, right? That's kind of like the way that dynamic looks for me. But shout out to Kessler Edwards. He hasn't played a ton uh, since coming over, but he did a really good job. And he was one of the big reasons why the Kings won this game. Knocked down the biggest shot of the game too, a kick out pass um, off of a double team in the right corner. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, One of the things that stood out to me from the Suns perspective in this game is just without Kevin Durant 
how poor they look at the forward position. Big shock. I mean, when you trade all your forwards to get the best forward, maybe, depending on who you ask. When you trade all your forwards to get the best forward, and then the best forward doesn't play, then suddenly you're paying, playing all your bench forwards, right? So, like, I mean, there was a steady diet of, like, Tory Craig and Ish Wainwright and Josh Okoji and some Terrence Ross down the stretch of this game. And Terrence Ross couldn't stay on the floor because he couldn't defend. And then the Kings just weren't even guarding the other three guys. Ish Wainwright, Josh Okoji, and Tory Craig were wide open pretty much the entire fourth quarter. They were loading up on the Booker and Paul actions. And those guys got great looks, and they just couldn't make them. Those four guys combined to go two for ten from the field in the fourth quarter. Uh, down the stretch, particularly, they went with Josh Okoji and Tory Craig, and they just couldn't get a quality look because they were just ignoring them. Uh, I think Josh Okoji missed a corner three. I think Tory Craig missed a corner three. Just in those last few possessions, it was bad. So, like, KD coming back obviously helps that. And I always look at it as, like, the kind of like the aggregate ball handling of the group. I talk about this with the Lakers a lot. Like, Jared Vanderbilt is a real problem offensively, right? But if he's alongside Anthony Davis, LeBron James, Austin Reeves, and D'Angelo Russell, there's so much offensive skill around him that it'll be fine. And that's kind of the way I look at it from the Suns' perspective. If Kevin Durant is in for Torrey Craig, and that's Josh Okoji is the one weak link offensively, I think it all works. But when you have to put two guys like that out there, that's when things just kind of drop below that minimum level of acceptable offensive talent to be able to contend against good teams. Um, but the King, the Kings continue to be ridiculously good in clutch situations. Uh, down the stretch, it was 115-115, and the the uh, the Kings scored on four straight possessions, and three of them were outstanding shot quality. Only one of them was tough. So I wanted to kind of go play-by-play play through that really quick. So when it was 115-115, they start by running a, a Malik Monk and uh, Sabonis pick-and-roll, and this was the play that got Terrence Ross out of the game. Malik Monk got downhill way too easy, engaged the screen defender, just threw a little shovel pass to Sabonis, who got a wide-open layup, right? Next possession down the floor, De'Aaron Fox runs a pick-and-roll with Demonis Sabonis, and they actually defend it really well. This was the one possession that they forced the Kings into a tough shot. They contain the pick-and-roll. DeAndre Ayton recovers back to Sabonis. Sabonis is now stuck in the post. The shot clock's winding down, and he just kind of like orients himself and hits Aiton with the shoulder and comes way out wide with this lefty hook and he puts it in. Tough shot, you know? Um, but from there, Darren Fox started going at Torrey Craig. So he starts calling these ball screens to get switches. He gets switched on to Torrey Craig. First play is the one I told you guys about earlier. Hits Torrey Craig with a left-to-right crossover, buckles him, gets all the separation, knocks down the jump shot. So then, the very next possession, they go at Torrey Craig again, get the switch, and the Suns had to double. And when they doubled, it was swing, swing, wide open three for Kessler Edwards. That ended up being the dagger. So, like, the level of offense, it's not hard to see why this works. The Kings are now 22-14 and 14 in clutch games. That's the sixth best win percentage in the league in those situations. They have a 129 offensive rating in clutch situations, which is the best in the league by a mile. That's 11.4 points better than the second best clutch offense in the league. And to me, it's really simple. It's an outstanding pick-and-roll duo. Darren Fox, who you have to chase over the screen, which is going to get him downhill, right? And um, Demonis Sabonis, who can catch and finish everything around the rim, is an outstanding screener to get Darren Fox position. And you can't switch the pick and roll because if you switch it, Darren Fox is going to kill you in ISO or, uh, or Demonis Sabonis is going to kill you in a post. So, like, that dynamic is just a huge pain in the ass for every team. And what makes it work is Sabonis... 
can finish everything around the rim, and he can make all those quick little hook shots in the lane against switches. And De'Aaron Fox has a great pull-up jump shot that he can use in ball screens when they when he gets too much separation and that he can beat people with an ISO, and he can get all the way to the rim to a, such a ridiculous extent that guys play off of him because how quick he is. Oh, and even if he gets into your chest, he can stop short and kind of pull up and make that little short little left-handed floater in the lane. The offensive skill set of those two makes it extremely difficult to guard them, which starts bringing extra defenders into the play, and they're always surrounded by three great shooters. Whether it's Harrison Barnes, or whether it's Kevin Herter, or today or last night it was you know Kessler Edwards. Like regardless, of, regardless of who it ends up being, I, they went with a lot of Malik Monk in the clutch situations this year. Malik Monk is obviously a dead eye shooter. Can also run a little second side action if De'Aaron Fox gives the ball up. They're just an extremely difficult team to guard in clutch situations. I don't think it's I don't think that's fluky. Like if if the the Kings can somehow find themselves getting into late game situations in the clutch. Obviously, their defense is going to be a problem, but their offense is going to give them a chance to win playoff games down the stretch. Um, De'Aaron Fox has made 65 clutch field goals this year, which is 21 more than the next best guy in the league. He's shooting 54% in those situations. Um, yeah, We talked a little bit about what he can do in ISO and pick and roll with his skill set. Here, here's where I'm at with the Kings. Do I think they can win the West? Sure. But that mainly has to do with the fact that the West is a shit show. I think that the Kings have, like, there's no reason why I should theoretically believe in teams below them, right? Like, the Warriors are incredibly unathletic without Andrew Wiggins, and who knows when he's going to come back. LeBron's out. Kevin Durant's out. We, talk, we talked about all that stuff. Everybody below the top of the West has so many question marks that, like, yeah, any of those teams could win the West, but they could just as easily lose in the play-in or, or, or lose in the first round. Like, all those teams, you know how much I believe in their ceiling. I think the Suns can win the title. I think the Clippers can win the title. I think the Warriors can win the title. I think the Lakers can win the title. But they just have so many question marks. And then between Denver and Sacramento, I think Denver's better, and I'd pick them if they ended up in a Western Conference Finals matchup. But Sacramento presents some of those specific issues we talked about earlier with Denver in five-out situations with a much better guard initiating things in De'Aaron Fox. So they have a puncher's chance to win that series. And then, yeah, in the finals, it, get, it gets extremely tough because now, like, I think I think they would have almost a 0% chance of beating Boston or Milwaukee. So I kind of put their ceiling at can they win the West? Yes. Can they win the finals? No. And the real thing that's holding them back, once again, continues to be the defense. Even in this 8-1 stretch post-All-Star break, they are 27th in defensive rating. They haven't had a single encouraging stretch of defense during the season. Their best defensive month was December. They were 14th. But they've been in the bottom half of the league every other month. In four of the six seasons this month, or months this season, they've been in the bottom 10 in defensive rating. It really comes down to front court. I actually think the guards have done a decent job. You've seen a little bit of Terrence Davis. You've seen a little bit of Davion Mitchell. Darren Fox is playing really good defensively as of late. Their guards are competing. But it comes down to that same concept that I've talked about forever. Look back at NBA history from now every year back. Who is the defensive front court? Last year, Draymond Green. The, one of the best defensive players of all time. With Kevon Looney, a good defensive front court player. Year before, Giannis and Brooke Lopez, arguably the best defensive front court to ever win a championship, right? Depending on who you ask. LeBron and Anthony Davis in 2020. 
Kawhi Leonard and Serge Ibaka in 2019. The uh, uh, the Warriors again in 2018 and 2017, except for now it's Draymond and Kevin Durant. You know, LeBron James and Tristan Thompson in 2016, the back when LeBron was an otherworldly defensive player. Draymond Green again in 2015. Tim Duncan in 2014. Bosh and LeBron in 2013. Bosh and LeBron in 2012. You know, Sean Marion and Tyson Chandler in 2011. Bynum Gasol. Bynum Gasol. Kevin Garnett. We, uh, like we, uh, Tim Duncan. We can go on forever. It, you need, you're not winning a championship in the NBA unless you have an outstanding defensive front court. And the Kings, it's Harrison Barnes and Demonis Sabonis. So that's ultimately what's holding them back. In the NBA, your forwards are what contain pick and roll actions. They're what help around the rim. And then when the defense gets in rotation, they have to be able to cover ground and drive and kick basketball. You can't win unless you have excellent players in those positions. That's what's holding them back. So I've enjoyed watching the Kings. We're going to cover them very closely. Kings fans, we will cover every single playoff game for the for the Kings this year. It, we'll do film deep dives. We'll do instant reactions. It, I it's just I mean, like as I'm curious if you're a Kings fan, put it in the comments. Like, do you think they can win the title with the Harrison Barnes Demonis Sabonis front court defensively? Do you think they can? And, and let's be honest and and let's have a conversation about it. All right, guys, that's all I have for tonight. As always, I sincerely appreciate your uh, support. Rest of the schedule for this week, uh, daytime shows, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Taking Friday off, probably going to have a video Saturday night after Warriors Grizzlies, and then taking Sunday off before we go into next week. As always, I sincerely appreciate you guys, and I will see you tomorrow morning. The Volume. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.